The reading is from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 8, beginning in verse 28 to the end of verse 34. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herds of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to you, Lord Christ. Well, friends, welcome back to Christ Church Oceanside in our podcast here. We are continuing our studies of the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 8, and this is Pastor Ryan. So it's good to have you with us today. Now, this text of Scripture is going to touch on uh, some big things that we've been covering for some time. A number of weeks ago, I spent some time breaking down a biblical theology of demon oppression. Not because we believe that evil spirits should get a ton of our attention or concern, but because it wonderfully showcases the identity and saving power of Jesus. And it comes up quite a bit in the Gospels. Now, the way we defined demonic oppression a few weeks ago is this, the resulting human fearfulness, hopelessness, confusion, and suffering which characterizes life under the rule, influence, and impact of the kingdom of darkness. Now, in today's text, we see Matthew use a different description or category of demonic impact called possession. Now, I know we hear about that a lot in the movies and things like that, but we're, we're going to keep it to the scriptures here um, to base our understanding on it. Now, possession, this word that Matthew chooses to use, speaks of what? It speaks of ownership and enslavement. Matthew is simply describing, though, the reality of the situation. These men have suffered so severely under the oppression of the kingdom of darkness that their sense of agency, autonomy, their will, and their personhood have been subjected to a subservient rule. So basically, they're no longer in primary control over themselves. And so we're going to unpack what this looks like in the text, but I'm going to touch on a question here. And this comes up every time I preach on a passage with a demonic element. And the question is this, can Christians be demon-possessed? Why does this come up so often? I think there's a couple reasons. The first is that 
the person wants to test me as the preacher, as the pastor, on how high my soteriology is, so that my doctrines of salvation. So that's kind of the main way I get the question is people kind of trying to test me. But the second one is more just pastoral, is that people want to know because of fear. And why do they fear? I think because we naturally tend to miss the point of these texts of scriptures. Um, friends, Jesus and the strength and sufficiency of the salvation that he lovingly brings and achieves is the main point. The main point is always the redemption that comes with Jesus. But to answer the question, can Christians be possessed? The short answer is no. Why do I believe that? Because to possess a Christian, the kingdom of darkness would have to triumph over Christ, it would have to possess Christ, because the Christian is not only submitted to Christ, as well as purchased and ransomed by Christ, but the Christian is also unified with Christ. So Christians can't be owned by the kingdom of darkness again if they are unified to Jesus. That's the simple answer. Now, the flip side, based on the other things we talked about with demon oppression, can Christians be oppressed? I think my answer to that is different. I think it's yes. But never to the extent or the degree of oppression one experiences without Jesus. And I think this is why we hear Christians use other words to describe that, like heaviness or I feel attacked or tempted more so than oppressed. Now, this doesn't mean there isn't any threat for the Christian, but the emphasis of the New Testament tends to be on different things. The emphasis of the, of the New Testament is saying that the kingdom of darkness is working to lead the Christian Primarily, this is like the number one thing that comes up into wrong belief or heresy. So to move them off the good news of Jesus and move them into other concerns. The other thing that we see the New Testament give great emphasis to is relational strife and dysfunction. That they want to thwart the kingdom of heaven, so to speak, by attacking the relationships within the church, within the community. And then we see the kingdom of darkness try to seek to create a hard-heartedness towards our neighbors. And, and then lastly, a temptation to sin. So the impact isn't primarily, um, you know, seeking to possess the individual. What we see in the scriptures is more seeking to lead them away from Jesus functionally, presently in their day-to-day -day life. Now, one other mistake, I think, when reading these texts is forgetting where these things are in the timeline of Jesus' saving work. Because when we're looking at this in the Gospels, here's an interaction that Jesus is having with a couple individuals. But he's on the road to completing the work of salvation. So what we see is that these men will still need Jesus to complete his work on the cross, right? Jesus doesn't just come, cast out demons, heal the sick, and go, yeet, I'm out of here, <laughs> good enough. Just wanted to show you I'm capable, but I'm gone. No, the work that Jesus is doing 
in casting out demons and doing healings is showcasing his identity, that he's God in flesh. But it's on the road to completing the work of full-fledged eternal salvation for people from sin, evil, and death. So these guys are meeting Jesus on the road to salvation, so to speak. So these men still need to personally believe in Jesus. Because what we're going to see in the story is actually they're not big players in this. They, they're just the beneficiaries of running into Jesus. But we'll also, these men will still need to be baptized, still need to be filled with the Spirit, still need to be taught and led by the church into growth, into maturity. So none of this is just like, well, because they met Jesus, all things are covered. This is a process for them, just as Jesus is in the process of completing salvation. So let's pick this text up. Let's start in verse 28 and start to work through it together. So verse 28, when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes. So Jesus, remember we covered the, the storm scene, Jesus addressing chaos, bringing calm to the creation. Now he's coming to this region um, that's known as the Gadarean region or as the Gerasene region. And it's located on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's part of the Decapolis, a league of 10 cities, and it's with a predominantly Gentile population. So this region is pretty unique in Jesus's time because of that. And there's a few other reasons. So it's predominantly Gentile, um, which is unusual for that region, which is predominantly Jewish dominated in that area of Palestine. The second thing is, is it's actually known for its pig farming. So whether it's known because of these texts of scripture or not, Historically, that's what we know about this area. But because of that, it's considered unclean and forbidden by Jewish law, right? So in some ways, it's a little bit of like a Gentile sanctuary away from Jewish laws. It's also a remote and desolate area. So the Gadarean region is located on that eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and which is pretty remote, and it's a pretty desolate area. And then lastly, it's actually associated with demonic activity. Again, whether or not it's connected to this story, can't say for sure. So because of the pagan practices of the time, things like that, it actually is known for these types of behaviors in people. Now, what we see happen, though, is the next words are two demon-possessed men met him. So they, they almost seem to like come running to Jesus. Why? Like, why did they come meet him? I think there's a couple options. The first is that the demons must come to Jesus because of his authority. If that's the case, that's pretty darn cool. Because they're so in a conquered state as far as their relationship to God. If Jesus comes in the region, they got to run to him and kind of bow to him. I think that's kind of rad. The second option, though, is this. The true person kind of stuck in that internal spiritual prison, these men had enough agency to kind of make a run for Jesus. If that's the case, I just think that's beautiful. Either way, Jesus is amazing. So I think we're pretty safe in that regard. But what I tend to lean towards, though, even if it's both, is that I'm convinced 
that the presence of Jesus always draws out the true person in his interactions with people. All the facades fall away. All of the kind of barriers and the walls that people build up over time fall away. And the true person comes out to have a conversation with their creator. And that little part of the person that aches for hope, no matter how dark the prison is that they are in, seems to have a voice with Jesus. So it's almost like Jesus is kind of walking into the dungeon here. And the captors can't fight him, can't fend him off, can't resist him, have to let him in. And Jesus comes right to speak through the bars to these men. Now, where are these men coming from? The text tells us that they're coming out of the tombs. The kingdom of darkness wishes this very thing, to draw humanity into the place of death. So these human hearts are so broken, they can develop only a taste, not like not only a taste for the dark, but find comfort in the darkness. I think when you begin to believe that the darkness is the real you, then what you want is the darkness. That these guys have been through so much, are so broken on the inside, see themselves so at one with pain and sorrow and death that they feel most comfortable in this place of of the tombs. That this is an unclean space that people don't go to and they've made this kind of a quote-unquote home. That's a sad state. To find, and, and I could see it a bit in my story too, where it's like, because there were these unhealed, broken, and sinful parts of my heart, I was actually drawn to things like that because I felt some kind of sense of affinity, some kind of like understanding there. Now, I want to make a quick point here for parents with children who find themselves kind of drawn to dark things. I think it's helped, like, you know, whether it's the goth stage or the heavy metal or, you know, hardcore music or whatever. Every generation has their kind of version of this. I think it seems to come up with families. No matter what part of history they're in, there's always this kind of thing that's going on. I think it's important for parents to look at it as symptomatic and not causal. So what I mean by that is that heavy metal music isn't making your kid dark. It's more that there's things going on in your child's heart that they find affinity with dark things. So maybe there's a part of their heart that feels deep shame or sadness or anger. I know lots of friends back in the day who are deeply into hardcore music because it was a way of expressing the anger that they didn't know how to express. Maybe they're overwhelmed or confused, lost or hopeless. But here's the thing, deep down inside, this is going on. It's already there. These cultural expressions of it make them feel understood and at home. Now, it's a false knowing and a false comfort. But what they're looking for is a place that gets them, 
And so why it's false is that it doesn't, it's not redemptive. It just, it just tells you, I have the same things. We all feel the same things. You're at home and accepted here. What they need to hear is about the humanity and suffering of Jesus that will meet them in that place. And here's the thing, a Christianity that can't deal in or handle the dark places feels fake because humanity is dealing with hard, dark places that are going on inside of us. So we need to know that the gospel includes those feelings, meets you in the midst of those struggles. So Jesus's humanity communicates that beautifully. His his entering into the human struggle and his death in suffering and darkness, his dealing with the demonic, his temptation, all of that is good news to somebody who feels those things. Not to mention the tradition, the history of the church paints pictures of the fact that we, we understand the darkness, but we have a cure. That's why ancient churches are decorated with skulls and bones. It's because we're saying we're not flinching in the face of this reality. We know it, we understand it, and we know that Jesus is the answer for it. The kingdom of darkness wants to oppress humanity with evil, convince humanity that they cannot escape, that there is no hope, and then that this is actually who we are. The darkness is our identity. Now, this gets a bit more uncomfortable from here because what does this kind of identity produce? In this text of scripture, it shows us that it produces violence. So the next thing it says, they lived in the tombs and they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. These men were so tormented by evil that they came to hate the world and everyone in it. So much so that if anybody tried to pass through that area, they were going to be attacked by these men. That these men sought to do harm to anyone who came that way. I think this is the spirit behind any kind of senseless violence at work within the world. But what that violence is trying to communicate to the world is, if this world is going to destroy me, hate me, devalue me, pretend I don't exist, then I will make my presence known through pain. Because pain is what I live and breathe. Now verse 29, it goes on, And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, John Calvin says the demon's speech here to Jesus is, is involuntary. That it's like forcefully drawn out of them by Jesus's mere presence. But there's a few noteworthy elements in the demon's response that I think are worth kind of taking a look at. The first is that the demons fear for themselves in the presence of Jesus. So they're like overcome with terror for themselves. Now, I, I'll be honest with you, I want to take a minute to just enjoy that. That evil is terrified of Jesus. I love that. I want 
evil to be terrified of pure goodness. The second thing is they fully recognize who Jesus is and call him the Son of God. This is important. This is an important witness moment even for the disciples to see this. This is who Jesus is, and they fully know this, these evil spirits. Now, the next thing that comes up is so interesting. They know the inevitability of their punishment and that there's a specific time of which that they are aware of that is coming and it's not yet that time. That's wild to me. They somehow know it's not the time. They know that the time is coming and that they're helpless towards it. That's so wild. But the next verse reveals the vision of the kingdom of darkness. So what are they hoping to do in the meantime while they wait for their coming judgment where Christ will judge them and actually so will the church and then will punish and destroy them? That's the good news that we have to look forward to is that evil's death is coming. But verse 30, 31 helps us see a bit of what they're trying to do in the meantime. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. First, see how they negotiate and beg, but also that they're just selfish and entitled with every fiber of their spiritual being. So here's what we're dealing with, is that the kingdom of darkness, these evil spirits, have failed to dethrone God through their rebellion. And so now that the kingdom of darkness wishes only for the destruction of the creation, that's what they're so preoccupied with when Jesus shows up here. Augustine says it like this, They had no love for the swine but only a desire for some corporeal habitation. For they would rather dwell in the bodies of unclean animals than not have bodies at all. Which brings to, you know, so many questions that kind of come up with that. Are they trying to get bodies? Like, is that what they're jealous about? Is the created physical state of the world? And But what we know for sure is that they're seeking the destruction of the creation. Humanity, principally. But now, if not humanity, then anything. Now, verse 32, we get Jesus' response. And he said to them, go. Again, Jesus dispels them with a word. And that's the pattern that Matthew's painting for us. All he's got to say is go. But also, I think the word is laced with Jesus' disgust. There's no more words than are absolutely necessary in this exchange. It's just a go. So what happens? So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. So as soon as they enter into the pigs, the legion of demons enact their will upon their malleable victims. They drive the herd straight into death by drowning. This is what the kingdom of darkness wants. For the creation to share in their punishment and death. Now, this tends to bring up the next question for, I think, many of us. Why does Jesus allow for this? The most common 
opinion about this in church history seems to be that this is an allegory for the coming wrath of those who persist in uncleanness, specifically the people of Israel. This idea that the kingdom of darkness, the evil spirits, what they're seeking for is that we would just share in their death and their punishment, and that this is allegorical for that. Others see it as a kind of ransom or reparation cost paid by the community for these men's liberation. I wonder a little bit if it somehow saves the men from the demons returning to them after, like Jesus talks about elsewhere, roaming the earth looking for a new victim. But really, we don't know. But verse 33 and 34 are going to help us understand how best to make sense of this. So verse 33 goes on. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed man. So the response of the herdsmen is this. There's no mention of them till now, but it's not one of jubilation. It's actually terror, fearfulness. They flee. What are they afraid of? <laughs> of Jesus. And they tell everything to the city, but they especially focus on what, the, what they witnessed happen to the men even over the loss of their own possessions. So I think that's the key for us. Matthew's giving special attention to the especially, so that we do too. That we don't miss the saving power of Jesus because of potential confusion concerning the bacon. <laughs> now, what's the response of the city to this good news? Well, verse 34 says, And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So the whole city comes out, meets Jesus, just like the two men did initially. And upon seeing him, they see the same thing that, they, that these men saw and these demons saw. But they have a slightly different response to Jesus than the demons did. The city has the gall to ask Jesus to leave. I think that's an interesting picture of the human soul, where demons tremble and know that they must flee Jesus' wrath. Human hubris thinks it's appropriate to turn the Creator, the King of Kings, the Divine Judge, and the Savior of the world, which they clearly see in the redemption of these two men, they think the appropriate response to all of that is to turn him away. What could be worth keeping over having Jesus? I think it does come back to the possession piece to go. They see him as a liability to their economic system. Which we don't have time to unpack all of that. But friends, when I think about the takeaways of this whole thing... Oh man, the biggest one for me is this. Jesus works. His salvation is real and available. And so on the other, the other side of that coin then is this. True discipleship, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, takes seriously the need for our redemption, but also the sufficiency of Jesus' accomplishment to do so. The church has to be willing to go, we are not okay with the kingdom of darkness. We do not want any 
participation in it. We do not want to stand or stand for or allow or explain away or justify any more of that influence in our lives. Did you know it's a common historical practice upon your baptism to go out into the streets afterwards, leave the church and spit? This idea of like spitting on the devil and going, this is what I've done in my baptism. I have rejected the devil and Christ has saved me from him. And I know it seems a little wild, a little radical, but we need more of that wild and we need more of that radical in the church where we're serious about the fact that we reject the kingdom of darkness and we want nothing to do with it. This is not... We're not talking about spitting on people. Do not misunderstand me. I'm saying it's this idea of like indignant refusal to have anything to do with evil. And what we see here is Jesus's triumph again over the powers of the kingdom of darkness. The church then should thrive in the freedom that comes from that. That anywhere we can see, and I think the season of Lent calls for this, anywhere we can see the power of evil, the influence of evil, the presence of evil, the oppression of evil in our lives, we want to vehemently reject it and call for the power of Jesus to save, to transform, and to lead us into new life and freedom in him. This should be what we're known for if we're true followers of Jesus. Why? Because the real Jesus is in this church. The real Jesus is in these homes. The real Jesus is in my heart where I tend to participate with evil. So this is a beautiful moment. And honestly, I can't help on the podcast here to long that you are with me, with us at the table now. Because here, what do we do? We confess and repent for anywhere we've participated with evil. We put our faith solely in our needs and our desires and, and our dependency solely upon Jesus. We recommit ourselves to him and we eat of the bread and we drink of the wine that we might participate in and be united afresh, that our bond would be strengthened with Jesus. Not that it's waning, not that we can be cut off from him, but maybe in our hearts where we've strayed from him, we're coming back to our true love to our true master, to the one we want to be filled with, united with, owned by, that Jesus alone deserves that level of influence in our lives. Oh, that the church would be full of free people. And oh, that our message to the world would be of his sufficiency. And all oh, that there would be more testimonies of his saving power flowing out of the church into our communities. I was enslaved to this, but now because of Jesus, 
I'm free. This, beloved, is the way of Jesus. Amen.